Today's reading is from Mark 12, uh, verses 28 through 34, which can be found on page 709 of your pew Bibles. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You were right in saying that God is one and there is no other God before him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, Father, Take our minds and think through them. Take our hands and our feet and work through them. Take our lips and speak through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Amen. Well, for the last several weeks, we've been listening. We've been listening in response to Jesus in the aftermath of his unexpected and disconcerting actions in the heart of Jerusalem. Specifically, you'll remember the temple. More than clearing or cleaning it out, Jesus has declared the centerpiece of life, religious, political, economic, social, life in Israel, to be null and void, empty and meaningless. And a message like that does not go down easy, especially if you're part of the establishment. They're blood boiling. Those in leadership over the people of Israel have responded to all this by trying everything and anything they can to bring Jesus down. Groups normally at odds with each other, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees have become united in questioning Jesus at every turn, trying to trip him up, seeking to trap him in a costly mistake. Yet as we've witnessed over these last few weeks, with every question, Jesus gives the perfect answer. Each time, Jesus responds by way of questions. And in those questions, his answers reveal the truth. The truth not only about the topic at hand, but the true heart and motives of his questioners. However, if you were paying attention as Josh was reading, today's encounter with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is different. As we come to the last in a series of questions asked of him, It is an individual rather than a group who addresses Jesus. Just in case we were writing off all religious leaders as hard-hearted, unseeing opponents of Jesus, Mark ends this series of questionable questions with this scribe who asks a genuine one. Now, uh, keep in mind, seemingly this man was part of the original trio making inquiries, the first three that started launching questions at Jesus. So this teacher of the law has heard Jesus respond to the slew of questions designed to box him into a corner and discredit him. So assuming that this man came with a bias towards Jesus, in actually listening to Jesus, he has been positively impacted, moved, 
stirred. He's heard enough that he asks Jesus a question, not with an ulterior motive, but with sincerity. And again, if you heard, as Josh was reading, if you still have your Bible open, which I hope you do, his question is a good one. It's a question any teacher of the law would want to ask to know. Seriously, if you committed and spent your whole life studying the scriptures, it's the question. But it's not just a question for a scribe to ask. It's not just an answer a teacher of the law should be looking for. This question is the central question for any disciple of Jesus. We live in a world, our lives are structured around rules and boundaries, do's and don'ts, formal and informal. It doesn't matter. Job descriptions, rules of the road, contracts for doing business, marriage vows. If we step back like this teacher, we can ask, Jesus, in the midst of all these rules, in the midst of all these boundaries, in the midst of all these standards, in the midst of all these parameters we have to operate in, how do we navigate all that? How do we not get overwhelmed by all of it? What's the most important thing? For anyone who professes not just to believe in Jesus, but also to follow him with their lives, his answer to this question is the defining center out of which our faith and our practices, how we live, ought to emerge. You see, the law, as given to Moses, was generally understood to serve two purposes. First, the law, the Torah, tells us who God is. It reveals the character of God. Second, the law, the Torah, tells us what God wants from us. So with this in mind, asking what is the greatest commandment makes sense. After all, if the law tells us who God is, then the greatest command is going to describe God best. If the law tells us what God wants from us, then the greatest command is going to best describe what it is we can do to serve and honor God. Jesus' answer is immediate. He quotes a foundational scripture from Deuteronomy that's more commonly known as the Shema. Shema, a Hebrew word for hear, listen, obey. It's the first word of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 that Jesus quotes here. Shema, hear, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Shema is the core Hebrew prayer, much like the Lord's Prayer is for us as Christians. If you're Jewish, the Shema is the first thing you say when you get up in the morning and the last thing you say when you go to bed at night. The Shema is not just the first verse you want your children to memorize from the Bible. The Shema are the first words you teach your children as they learn to talk. And if at all possible, the Shema is the last thing you say with your dying breath. Jesus begins by giving the classic traditional Sunday school, or should we say Hebrew school, answer. However, I don't know if you caught this, and this is where if you have your Bibles open, it would be very, very helpful. Notice what Jesus does here as he recites the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. Did you catch it? In answering this intelligent, thoughtful, and learned man, Jesus adds a little something extra. 
Love God with all your mind. Jesus is reinforcing the call for us to love God wholeheartedly. In other words, to this scholar, Jesus is making the Shema personal. It's as if he's saying to this, again, teacher, bring everything God your Father has made you to be, all your study, all your learning, all your knowledge, all your wisdom, use it all to love him. We begin here. The starting point of a viable relationship with God, the starting point of truly following Jesus is to recognize and yield before the revelation that God our Father wants all of us. Not just part, all of us. Belief in God becomes the practice of living for God when we hold nothing back from him. Nothing. As a pastor, sometimes believers will ask me questions like these. Is it okay to be a Christian and watch or listen to non-Christian music or movies? And my answer is no, it's not. Is it okay to be a Christian and gamble or drink a little too much? And my answer is no, it's not. Is it okay to be a Christian and not tithe or attend worship on a regular basis? And my answer is, no, it's not. Now, before you react to what I'm saying, hear me out. I answer this way not because there's anything wrong, per se, with any of the things that I just mentioned. I answer this way, actually regardless of the question, because of the attitude behind the question. Is it okay to be a Christian and still dot, 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 dot? The question betrays a certain attitude of mind and heart that frankly is incompatible with the demanding nature of discipleship. In each case, the person asking the question is willing to give most of their life over to Jesus, but wanted to hold on to a little bit back for himself or herself. And that's the problem. We can't call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus, and still dot, 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 dot. Whatever. The start of the greatest command is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Beloved, what's the most important relationship in your life? What's the most important relationship in your life? It's not a thing. It's not a relationship with a thing, a possession, a hobby, an addiction, What's the most important relationship in your life? It's not even with another human being. Your friends, your family, your spouse, or even your parents. Sorry, Mom. While I'm sure they're all great people, and I mean that. I'm sure they're all fabulous people. None of them is your creator. None of them is your creator. None of them can save you. None of them loves you or can love you the way God, your Father, does the way Jesus does. Now, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We, of course, fall short of such love time and time again. But because God loved us first, our Father always forgives and picks us back up. 
And even though we fall short, even though we fall down, we mustn't stop giving ourselves over afresh to God each day and renewing our commitment to a life of discipleship and true love for God. The demanding nature of discipleship is we're called to love God unconditionally and wholeheartedly without any reserve at all. To engage life, to persist in the midst of sin and to conquer death through the only love that can save us. The love that brought us into this world and the love that takes us into the next. We need to be grounded in that kind of love because of what Jesus adds next here. Now, no one who's overhearing this conversation between this teacher of the law and Jesus, no one who was there in that crowd, either opponents or admirers, would have dis disputed the first part of Jesus' answer. Like I told you, he gave the Hebrew school the classic traditional answer, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love God is the greatest commandment. No one's going to take issue with that. But when Jesus takes the Shema and connects it to loving one's neighbor, a verse, by the way, out of Leviticus, things start to get interesting. You see, when the Lord gave the command to love your neighbor in Leviticus, by the way, in chapter 19, verse 18, the context of that command was strengthening and supporting the existing, the surrounding community. The word used in Hebrew for neighbor in Leviticus implies a friend or a fellow citizen. In other words, loving your neighbor originally was about how Israelites should treat their fellow Israelites. But taken in the context of what Jesus has been teaching and showing throughout his ministry, the meaning of loving one's neighbor has gotten a whole lot bigger. Through not only his words, but also his actions, we have seen that Jesus intended our understanding of neighbor to be interpreted more widely. He has demonstrated time and time again, loving one's neighbor includes love expressed in action, even towards those with other beliefs. Like a Roman centurion or a Syrophoenician woman, a tax collector, or even a rich young ruler. Luke, in his gospel account, makes this explicitly clear as Jesus goes on to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And you'll remember he answers that question, who is my neighbor, by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. The bite of that story being that the Samaritans were natural enemies of the Jews. So, we learn another component of a viable relationship with God, of truly following Jesus. The first was loving God with everything we are and all that we have. The second of a viable relationship with God, of truly following Jesus, is loving our neighbor. With the definition of neighbor being set not by the bylaws of the club, not by the standards of the community, not by the laws passed by the government, not even by the rules of our denomination or our church. Jesus expounds, expands the boundaries of our neighborhood to include those who do not share the same faith, who do not share the same politics, who do not share the same nationality, who do not shame, share the same interests as us. And Jesus doesn't just, by the way, notice this, Jesus doesn't just call us to accept those who are different from us, to accept them as our neighbors. Jesus calls us to love them. I, as always, I can only speak for myself. I don't know about you, but I find it's very easy to think about love in the abstract. I love love songs. I love thinking about love. I'm a lovable guy. I like to think I'm a lovable guy. 
But as much as I like to think about love in the abstract, love in practice isn't easy. I mean, and some of you are here, but if I'm really, if I confess something out loud, oftentimes I find it difficult to love even the people I'm closest to. But Jesus says following him means loving those who are antagonistic toward me. Loving those who even hate me. That kind of love, man, that kind of love by far is the hardest to feel, isn't it? Isn't that the hardest to feel? I mean, how do we love when we aren't feeling it? How do we love when their political views frustrate us? How do we love when the practices of their faith intimidate or confound us? How do we love when their lifestyle makes us uncomfortable? How do we love when their culture is so foreign to us? How do we do that? The love of neighbor Jesus calls us to comes into being once we realize that the love of Christ is more than a feeling. Love, hear this, True love, divine love, is not a feeling. It is an action of the will. If we're expecting to feel that stranger, that enemy, that difficult person in your life is like our brother and sister, if we're expecting to feel that, and if we're waiting for that feeling, late breaking news flash, it's going to be a long wait. But on the other hand, if we're willing to treat that stranger, that enemy, that difficult person in our life as our sister or brother, this will change the relationship. The love will follow. Love is not a feeling. Love is an act of the will. Out of love, by God's will, through God's word, we were created. There was life. By God's will, through the word of God made flesh, we were saved. We emerged. Life emerged from death. You see, too many people believe that evil put Jesus on the cross. And I'm here to tell you that nothing could be farther from the truth. Evil didn't put Jesus on the cross. Love did. Love did. Our sin, indeed, our sin, no question, weighed upon his shoulders. But guys, Jesus was powerful enough to shrug him off. Yes, misguided and deceitful men accused abused and then executed Jesus, mocking him all the while while doing so. But we know Jesus could have summarily disposed of all of them. No nail, no matter how strong, no nail, no matter how many, held Jesus to that wood. It was love that held him there. Not the power of the feeling of love. It was the power of the act of love, Love that willingly embraced our sin, even the most vile and horrifying sins of our humanity. It was love that willingly bore them unto death, walking that dark path for us, even though he was the one person born on this earth who could have avoided it. On the cross, Jesus shows us, he teaches us, he fulfills for us what love is. 
Isn't that the classic refrain in every single love song? Foreigner, I want to know what love is. Jesus, no. (laughs) Jesus shows us. He teaches us. He reveals, he fulfills for us what true love is. One interesting thing about that song, by the way, is the lead singer for Foreigner sang that song as a non-believer and years later gave his life to Christ. And he sings that song differently now. Go home and listen to the words and it's amazing when you think of Jesus rather than who you're hot and heavy with in the car next to how much that song changes. Jesus shows us what true love is. Love cost him, cost Jesus more than a change of feelings. Love cost Jesus everything. And that's the thing, costly love like this Costly love like that, it's inviting, man. It's inviting and it's challenging. It offers and yet it demands such vulnerability, such time, such energy, such service. And frankly, we're so busy, we got so much going on, we don't have a lot of space. You're sorry, we're just doing what we're doing. Frankly, we can be afraid of love like this. We see Christ on the road to the cross knowing this, the, the, the kind of love that's willing him there and we can say like Peter, you know what? Not me, I don't even know that guy. But if we seek to be followers of Jesus, we're called to love like that. To love others as he loves us. And this is, there it is, to love others as he loves us. That's the third component of a viable relationship with, of, with God, of truly following Jesus. The first, love God with all that we have and all that we are. The second, love our neighbor as defined by Jesus. The third is to love oneself. Ironically, in my pastoral and personal experience, for many people, this is the hardest thing. The hardest thing of all for many is to hear that God loves you, that God truly and completely and totally loves you. More of us than we care to admit hate what we are. More of us than we care to admit at the very least hate aspects of ourselves and we can't believe that God loves us. You want the litmus test for this, in my personal opinion, is when you say to someone, I love you. And they go, okay, yeah, good. I love you too, man. No, no, I love you. Yeah, uh-huh, right. No, no, I, lo- I really, I love you. Stop saying that. Why? It's just, it's cool, I got it. No, 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 you don't. I love you, man. No, 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 I really, stop saying that. Many of us, we, we keep it all together. We, you know, we've got it at a certain baseline, but if we actually go, and I'm, I'm probing right now, and this is not good, right? Uh, if we go beyond a certain level, there's a place where we were told, we told ourselves, someone else told us, that you, you, yeah, you're loved, but you're not loved that much. You can be loved, but not here. You can be loved, but not in this way. And we've learned to just sort of forget that. We don't go there. We're willing to take the love we can get. And again, back to modern love songs or love songs, we want to know what love is. And oftentimes in love songs, we simply take the love we can get. And yet the the, the love that we can get is all the love of God, and yet we're not willing to receive it. We don't know how to receive it. Jesus, right here, very subtly shines a light on this obstacle for many of us of loving ourselves when he says, love your neighbor as you love 
yourself. Jesus doesn't say love your neighbor more than you love yourself. Jesus doesn't say love your neighbor less than you love yourself. Jesus says love your neighbor as you love yourself. Beloved, we miss a huge, huge part of why God comes to us in Jesus Christ if we fail to learn to love ourselves, to know our value and our worth to God. Jesus comes to us because God loves us just as we are, for who we are. But Jesus goes to the cross because God loves us too much to have us stay less than we are, to be less than we were created to be. The truth is, is if we can't love ourselves in Christ, we will find it very difficult to love others. One more pastoral observation in my experience and my own, my, own, my own life, more often than not, when we struggle to love our neighbor, whoever our neighbor is, for all of our anger, for all of our hate, for all of our frustration, whatever it is, if you really go, if you really let Jesus mine the depths of it, get to the bottom of it, it has absolutely nothing to do with that person. And it has everything to do with you and the love that you're willing to receive, the love that you believe is possible from God in Christ. If we don't love ourselves in Christ, we will find it very difficult to love others. And that's why a love like this, the love of God, God's love for us, Jesus' call to love one another can be so overwhelming. It can so intimidate us that frankly, many of us would rather play religion rather than practice love. And if the church has a black eye, and we talk about it a lot, if the church has a black eye, that's it, is that we are better at playing religion than we are practicing love. Many of us, we just get so, this is just getting into places that we just don't normally like to go, that we just find ourselves in this call to love, say, look, man, you know what, come on, just let it go. Let it go. We find in our lives we'd rather give a little money to charity than just open up our hearts to a stranger. We'd rather, so many of us, we get overwhelmed by this love that God has for us, this love that God calls us to. It's just easier to belong to the right church than be associated with the wrong kind of people. We'd rather pay our dues. We'd rather earn our way through some other form of sacrifice or burnt offering. And a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned this when I talked about forgiveness. And that's why for many of us, even though we say we're saved by grace, we're still bartering with God because we don't want to embrace that love. We don't want to embrace how that love's going to change us. So can't we have some other offering or sacrifice we can give to you? And can we be square? Well, that's the love we're willing to take. That's the love we can get. We don't need all that other stuff. That love's too much. And so we look for another sacrifice or burnt offering. But this is where I'm going to get really excited. Not this teacher of the law. Not this teacher of the law. Did you hear it? He affirms Jesus' answer. Let's remember, in case you forget, all of this started. How did we get here? All of this started in the aftermath of Jesus clearing the temple. He questioned its focus, its heart, its legitimacy, the consistency of its worship. And up till now, everyone has been confused, outraged, and offended. But this teacher of the law finally puts it all together. This is demonstrated, if you have your Bibles open, when this scribe says out loud the unspoken implication of Jesus linking these two different parts of Scripture. Look at what he says. 
Love of God and love of neighbor as oneself is much more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Beloved, he's articulating the point. A message Israel failed to understand or accept going all the way back to the prophets. When God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The people were pinning their hopes on burnt offerings and sacrifices in the temple. And God was saying, you're just not getting it. I desire for you to demonstrate love to me by taking care of through your love of the people around you, particularly the least fortunate, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner. And what's just happened is in the courtyard of the temple only a day ago on the eve of Passover, Jesus has definitively repeated this statement by God by clearing out the temple. And this teacher of the law responds by acknowledging the rightness of Jesus' answer. By the way, if that Bible's open, notice that this teacher of the law doesn't just say more important. He says much more important. Loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself is much more important than burnt offering and sacrifices. And if this isn't hitting home for you, let me try to hit you on another level. Guys, oh my gosh, this is, a, to me, blows my mind. This scribe, this religious professional, let me emphasize that again, religious professional, this man who studies the law for a living, his living has just publicly announced that the source of his livelihood is much less important than attending to the well-being of others. This man, this teacher gets it. Dare I ask this morning to have a show of hands among us present who are willing to make this same public confession? Are we willing to say publicly out loud that attending to the needs of others is much more important than our livelihood? How we make our nut? How we provide for ourselves? This is unbelievable. This man, this teacher gets it. And, and again, if you doubt that everything that I'm saying, this brief but beautiful dialogue with Jesus comes to a close with these encouraging words. You are not far from the kingdom of God. <laughs> I, can, I don't know about you, but I'd like to hear these words in my life too. I want to hear these words in my life too. How can we get it the way that this guy gets it? And I don't think it's that complicated. I think like this man, we simply have to listen to Jesus. Sometimes we approach scripture. When we approach it, we think we have to figure it out for ourselves. I mean, we, the minutia, oh my gosh, the details of multiple sections, the various codes and conditions, they can overwhelm us so much that many of us give up and stop reading what the Bible says. We stop. Or, or we read the Bible selectively. Oh boy, we'll skip that. Oh, I can deal with that, Okay. We read the Bible selectively and we get fixated, even when we read it selectively, on little details. Is this you? What on earth does that mean? Why in the world does the Bible say that? I want to acknowledge, always has been, always will be, interpreting the Bible is challenging. 
But I want to suggest to you this morning, reading this, understanding this is less difficult when we listen to Jesus first. Do you notice that one thing thing that stands out is this teacher of the law in interacting with Jesus doesn't really add anything to what Jesus is saying. Do you have your Bibles open? Do you notice that he doesn't really add anything to what Jesus is saying? In hearing and affirming Jesus, he simply repeats back what Jesus has just said. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing this and repeating back what Jesus has said, he then connects it, again, nothing original here, to Scripture. He connects it to what God has already said. He says it in his own way, but he connects it to, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Beloved, what I want to suggest to you is, listening to Jesus often means repeating back what Jesus has said, what he tells us. This may sound very simplistic to you, But I want to suggest that repeating back to others what Jesus says to us, repeating back to yourself within your own heart and head, is integral to our maturity, to our growing up in Christ. And I I want us to use parenting as an analogy so that maybe youth will help you understand this. When we're trying to teach our children early on important guiding principles for life, we use repetition, right? We have our children repeat back what we say to them. So you're with your child, your child receives something from someone else, and you say, and what do we say? And the child goes, thank you. You're going to leave here, you're going to go across the street, you're going to go to BT's Smokehouse Barbecue and get some lunch, and you've got your kid, and you're about to cross the street, and as you're about to cross the street, what you say, what do we do before we cross the street? We look both ways first. And why do we do this? If you have a grandchild, a niece, a nephew, a kid of your own, or if you've just spent three hours with any small child, you know that you have to, we have to repeat it back to our children because they often don't get it on the first go around. We have to have them repeat it to us. Because why? They need to internalize it. Eventually, it sinks in. Our child has an epiphany where he or she finally gets it. Now, I don't think this is the case, but most of you probably don't have a child that you interacted with when they were younger, and now that they're 20 years of age, when all of a sudden someone gives it to something to them, you go, and we say? <laughs> Instead, if you're a parent of that child, you step back and you kind of go, yeah, they got it. Yes. What I want to say to you is this is the same way Jesus teaches us how to read Scripture. Jesus teaches us how to read and understand Scripture. As disciples of Jesus, if you have never engaged this book, as disciples of Jesus, we start with Jesus. We begin reading Scripture by repeating back what Jesus tells us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We internalize it. And in the repeating back, in the internalizing of what Jesus tells us, we begin to see, we begin to make connections, we begin to understand Scripture, we begin to learn to understand what God is saying. I want to suggest this to you, and if you have a red-letter Bible, it's going to be even easier. If you step away from your Bible or read it selectively, I want you, and you'll know what's the right amount of time, to commit yourself to immerse yourself just in the things that Jesus says. Go through the Gospels, write it down if it helps you, put it on the refrigerator, your car, but immerse yourself, repeat back, say, talk about it to others, repeat it back to others, repeat it to yourself when you're praying what Jesus says. Do that until you feel like you've sufficiently been marinating in the things that Jesus says. And then what I want to suggest you to do is after you do that, then go back and try to read this book. I guarantee you it will be a profoundly different experience. Profoundly different you will begin to understand and see things 
and not just see them, but to understand not just what they mean, but you will all of a sudden feel that, that, that tug of how, I, how am I called to live this out? All of a sudden, the day-to-day circumstances of your life, Scripture will start jumping off the page and grabbing hold of the very places and relationships you find yourself in. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Man, I don't know if anybody else sees this, but I, when I hear that, there's a double meaning to what Jesus says here. Do you see that? Do you notice it? Through this encounter with Jesus, what I mean is, this man was not only close to the kingdom of God in his understanding of the law, but he's also close to the kingdom of God in physical proximity. In a very real sense, the kingdom of God stood in human flesh right before this scribe. Here before him, answering his question, was the embodiment of the law this teacher had pursued almost all his life. Standing before him was the incarnation of love. Unselfish, sacrificial, the perfect love of God, of self, and neighbor. Truly, he was not far from the kingdom of God. Beloved, which love are you struggling with today? Which love are, are you struggling with today? Is it loving God first? Is it loving God unconditionally with everything you are, with all that you have? Is it loving yourself? Is it embracing the unconditional and highly demanding love God has for you that accepts you, all of you, where you are, but refuses to leave you as you are? Or is it loving your neighbor? Strangers, enemies, annoying people, and friends alike. Not because you feel like it, but rather through giving Jesus your will. Which love do you need to listen to Jesus about? Which love do you need to repeat back what Jesus is saying, internalizing it so you get it? In a world defined by boundaries and structured around rules and regulations, it's, it's often challenging to figure out which principles ought to set the direction of our lives. But if we listen, if we reflect carefully, Jesus separates the wheat from the chaff and points the way. He gives us the rubric for making sense of the law, not just the law of the Bible, but the laws we write ourselves. The most important thing Jesus insists is love. The law, any law, is only as good, only as valid, only as helpful or instructive as it is a means of loving God with all you are and everything you have. And such love of God is inseparable from loving our neighbor as ourselves. We are called to love God with everything or else we can't love everyone else like God does. We are invited and challenged to receive the absolute love God has for us without condition so that the love we have for others will be unconditional. Beloved, when we actually listen to Jesus, we get it too. The authority, the power, and therefore the will to love God, to love ourselves, and to love others. We cannot avoid this kind of love, the love of the cross, and call ourselves Christians. We cannot forsake receiving love like this and call ourselves God's children. We cannot turn away from sharing love like that and claim we are still following Christ. 
The burden of such love for God, for his creation, all of his creation, is ours to bear with Christ. Unlike Jesus, we aren't called to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. It's not our responsibility to create or bring salvation. Jesus took care of that. But it is our responsibility to bear and share the weight of the burden of a neighbor or two and ease it. It's our responsibility to proclaim salvation, to speak the truth of the good news about Jesus. And how we share that news determines whether we are being faithful to the story and truly revealing that this news is good. And it can only be done the right way through love. Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is what lifts God's word from the pages of the Bible into the pages of our lives. For it is only when we aren't, it is only when we aren't just proclaiming a message of salvation, but actually living as if we were saved, as if we have been saved. It's only when we're practicing resurrection, tangibly, practically sharing the hope and love we have in Christ with others. It is then and only then that we are not far from the kingdom of God. Will you pray with me? Father, loving Father, grant that what has been said with our lips we may believe in our hearts and that what we believe in our hearts we may practice in our lives in love through the one who is the embodiment of your love your true, perfect, and complete love, your one and only Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.